Giving voice, using our voice, and listening are all paramount to community building. The art of sharing recipes may seem an unlikely method to give voice to a nation, but that's exactly what Clementine Paddleford did in her formative cookbook, How America Eats. 12 years of travel, 800,000 miles by train, plane, automobile, by muleback, and on foot. Listening to the stories from hobo camps to governor's mansions, Clementine bestowed upon us a work of culinary literature that should be on every cookbook shelf across the U.S., but sadly, is not. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? Hey, you know, I'm hanging in there. We're having a really interesting kind of dry summer here in the Pacific Northwest. But oh, man, I've been enjoying going to farmer's markets. I've been staying true to my promise that I made earlier this year to be eating locally. So I've been having a great time actually mixing it up. I got some fresh local eggplant recently. So keeping my promise to Edna Lewis to eat local. But then I used Wei's book, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, to cook up that eggplant. So I'm actually having a really fun time working with all these cookbooks that we've been talking about this year. How are you doing? You know, I'm really good. Also very dry summer here. We are supposed to hit 91 today, which I'm dreading. We've been in the tiny house for about three weeks now, and we're still finishing up a lot of the projects, but my range is hooked up, which is super exciting. And speaking of local, the first thing I baked in it was a Juneberry rhubarb pie, and it was delicious. Mm. But to be really honest, I'm super looking forward to making a huckleberry pie. And this is a berry that is local to the valley and very iconic. Tourists come from all over to pick these berries. They leave with huckleberry taffy, huckleberry licorice, huckleberry jams. They have huckleberry ice cream and huckleberry shakes. Mm, Sounds delicious. (laughs) Had Clementine visited a family in the valley, she would have been taken huckleberry picking. Blindfolded on the way to the honey hole, of course, but treated to a picnic on the side of a mountain Mm -hmm. and then been delighted by the pie that would have been made to finish a supper of venison and if lucky, elk. Now, Kim, I have a question for you. Before we started this season of As We Eat, had you ever heard of Clementine Paddleford? Not at all. And in fact, if you had asked me what I knew about Clementine Paddleford, I would have said, what, is she a Harry Potter character? (laughs) I've never heard of her. And I've never heard of her writing or any of her seven books. And frankly, as I see her achievements, I'm like really shocked by that. Because we're talking somebody who has 30 years as the food editor of the New York Herald Tribune with a weekly column. So I did a little bit of math. We're talking no fewer than 1,560 articles with an estimated readership of 12 million people. How did she disappear? 
And how did you discover her? In my quest for vintage cookbooks, I came across How America Eats in a secondhand store. And I was amazed as I opened up this cookbook. It is just filled with so much information, so much history, so much regional cooking. And it was really kind of irritating to find that she had been shoved to the back of the bookshelf, both literally and figuratively, behind Julia, MFK Fisher, and James Beard. Absolutely. And she and James Beard were contemporaries. Yeah. Like, I'm blown away. Yeah. I know so much more about the James Beard Foundation, the James Beard Award. I know nothing about Clementine Paddleford. Yeah. So please tell me a little bit more about this amazing human being. So a little bit about Clem before I go on more of a tirade of the inequity (laughs) about all of this. Clementine Paddleford was born on a prairie farm in northeast Kansas in September of 1898. And she grew up, as most children did, doing chores, contributing to her local community as needed. But Clementine had a dream. She had a dream of becoming a journalist. She worked for her school newspaper, and when she wasn't writing about the latest sporting event, she would look for the scoop in everyday life in her tiny farm town. Chores done, piano practiced, she would head to the railroad station in town, pen poised to document the scoop that could land on the front page of the local paper, which she also worked for as a teenager. And there is an anecdotal, an anecdotal, anecdotal, yeah, anecdotal. Story easy for you to say about her being at this railroad station. She noticed that one of the businessmen from town boarded the train along with this woman who was not the man's wife. And she immediately thought, Could this be the scoop that would lead on the front page? There was nothing past that, but it was such a cute story about how serious she took this observation of people around her. Yeah. A real curiosity about what was going on behind the scenes. Exactly. Now, her hometown would help to propel her to the journalism career that she longed for. In 1863, the Kansas State Agriculture College opened its doors in Manhattan, Kansas, and started to offer a four-year course in industrial journalism. Now, from Manhattan, Kansas, to Manhattan, New York, to Chicago, Clementine would build her journalism career, ultimately landing at the New York Herald Tribune as a food editor from 1936 until the paper's demise in 1966. Now, she was not a sit-behind-the-desk kind of food editor. She was the the woman-on-the-street editor, and she relished the hunt for the story, and she was good at it. It's important to know that her original journalistic plan didn't include food. It was a very pragmatic decision on Clem's part. With the depression over, but the impact still being felt, she needed a steady income. And in order to do that, she had to write about things that people were still interested in, even in hard times. And as she brainstormed, she came up with two subjects, shoes and food. (laughs) And for her, the decision was easy. She was much more fond of food than she was of shoes. Now, as an aside, if you want to learn a little bit more about Clementine Paddleford, I'll be penning an article in the As We Eat journal. So head over there towards the end of the week for a little more about this charismatic foodie. So now that you know a little bit more about Clementine, let's move to the book. I want to give you a little bit of background of food writing at the time that Clem came onto the scene. 
Essentially, it didn't exist. Not as we know it today, anyway. What was being written was primarily done by home economists or journalists whose main focus was from a scientific perspective. Articles were about nutrition, which of course was important at the time. The world was just coming through a world war and the U.S. a Great Depression. Introducing nutrition was very important at the time. And we're starting to see science backing food and nutrition. So those articles obviously would have been mm. more prevalent than food writing in any other fashion. There were also how-to articles, like how to measure, how to light a fire. We were also at a point where commercial foods had started to replace home-cooked meals. So the prevailing thought was that American cuisine consisted of prepackaged foods, and it was uninventive, unimaginative, and it lacked a type of joy. The way that Clementine mm. approached her fruit stories, though, was from a journalist's perspective. She went out and found the stories. She talked with her sources, a critical component to all of her recipes. She interviewed, observed, and listened. She brought a voice to food writing that didn't exist before. I just wanted to interject for a second. It occurs to me that She's writing at a time, obviously a huge cultural shift in the United mm -hmm. States. And we've talked about this really at length many times. But I feel like we're actually maybe about to get to the heart of something because we hadn't invented nostalgia yet. And mm. I'm saying that and I don't mean it exactly like that because obviously we had. There was the good old days of the, of the Victorian era. There was plenty, there's plenty to be nostalgic about. But our country hadn't shifted as much in its culture and how it thought of modernism and how the home really changed to reflect that. Yeah, that kind of food writing that she effectively invented, it, it really didn't exist yet. Right. We weren't so desperately hungry, don't mind the subtle pun there, for that sense of how it used to be, how grandma's kitchen was, because we were still all in the, the thick of it. So in a way, she's given us a time capsule. Yeah, for sure. And, and, as you said, we started to recognize how important that time before was. Mm -hmm. yeah. And her descriptions are emotive, they're sensual, and they're personal. So in the Kansas section of the cookbook, she writes about a Midwest 4th of July picnic. In describing the dishes, she writes, napkin-covered baskets being hauled out from under the seats of fringe-topped carriages, the seductive fragrance of fresh cherry pies, their top crusts mm. embellished with fancy scrolls, cream crocks mounded with potato salad bedecked with slices of hard-cooked eggs. And she mentions people by name. Bertha Phillips brought those deviled eggs in tomato cases, showing off the women knew to impress the local bachelor banker. And then she goes on to explain how these devilishly tantalizing eggs are made employing phrases like delicately tinged with a restrained sprinkle of salt. I notice this familiarity as well. I, of course, turned to the chapter on Washington State, where I live. I went through the state of Ohio. I looked at the state of California just because I wanted to really get a sense of her writing and know where she went so that I could compare my experiences with these places as well. And I really love how she was writing up these things. Here, we readers follow her into the family home of Seattle Mayor Gordon S. Clinton, as well as the stately home of Governor Arthur B. Langley in Olympia, or down a narrow road leading into the apple country of Kashmir, Washington, 
or down Route 2 looking for the mailbox of Wheatman, Seedman, Max Heinrichs. And I'd like to stay here for a minute with Ms. Powford and Marge Henricks, just for a few minutes. I was able to time travel into the Henricks kitchen for a communal meal. About this scene, Clementine writes, quote, Marge was having threshers the day we were there. Fourteen men sat down at the long kitchen table. Six dozen orange rolls disappeared before dinner was done. We had arrived mid-morning, and Marge was in the kitchen with a high school girl for a helper. At least one car every half hour came into the driveway. A knock at the door to pick up orange rolls or the blue cheese dressing. Marge does a real business of these items, not just for money, but to oblige the neighbors and because she thinks it's fun, end quote. Mm. And it really resonated with me because I, I've i actually never been down Route 2, and I'm sure Mr. and Ms. Henricks are long gone at any rate. But for a moment, I could smell the dust of the road. I could smell dry straw. For a minute there, I was sitting down with them at the table, and I was eating those orange rolls. And I was listening to the men chatter, and I was watching the bustle happening, and I could imagine the neighbors pulling up to get a jar of blue cheese dressing. I really appreciated that just in a few sentences, she was able to evoke these places at these times for the reader, even now. And I don't know that she was necessarily writing for the history of it. I think that she was just so caught up in capturing where she was and what she was doing. But I appreciate her language. I appreciate that effort and that ability she had to paint a picture with her words. And her recipes seem to reflect that real simple, considering that she's talking to real people, when real people talk about real food, they go on. <laughs> you and I know this. I think I've written up like five pages of notes about one family recipe because you kind of can't help it. You're trying to communicate that she was able to bring an economy into writing up these recipes to share them that they were clear, but at the same time, it was about the food more than it was sometimes about the recipe, I feel. I'm looking forward to cooking these. Anyway, what are your thoughts? I, I agree with you. And I think the thing that I love so much about this book is that it was so important to identify these people. Like you said, Mr. and Mrs. Henrik are long gone. We will never meet them. We will probably never know who their children were or are or what they've done. But mm -hmm. we met them. We met them in this book and mm -hmm. we understood what was important to them as a family, what was important to them culturally through their food. And I just think that it's so amazing that it was so important to her to include the names in here. Not just I met this person yeah. in this place, but this person was part of this place and it was important to the legacy of that person to be included in this yeah. book. One of the things that I did come across was people would say, as they were describing her writing, that it was overly embellished. And I just don't agree with that. I think that when she was writing, there was such celebration of the time and effort that was put into these foods mm -hmm. that were set on the table. And I loved every description, every embellishment yeah. that she put into Me this <laughs> book. I loved it. Yeah. As the title of the book notes, this is truly a compendium of how America eats. In addition to turning food writing on its ear, Clementine codified regional foods in America, 
She's again, she celebrated American cuisine as uniquely multicultural. She witnessed how people ate in each region, that they ate what was available and combined them with the recipes they brought from their homelands. And this is a topic that we come back to again and again, this authenticity versus mm -hmm. accuracy. Not only does this book give voice to the many characters within, it does such a fabulous job of representing how cooking moves from authenticity, if you can call it that, into accuracy. Mm -hmm. I had, it, it's hard to call it an epiphany, although that's the word I've got for it. So I had this thought reading through some of these recipes and reading and thinking about this topic of authenticity and accuracy. Because what dawned on me was this thought that really when we are at home and we're cooking and we're getting ready to feed ourselves and to feed our families, that I don't know that we actually are really all that worried about being authentic. I do know that there are quite a few of us foodies who want to try foods from new cultures, from new regions. I think we are maybe looking for how to do something that aligns with the culture that we're cooking from, that is accurate to that. We can't be authentic to it because we're learning. We're not there, right? We're not boots on the ground in Thailand eating mm. foods made with ingredients that are native to Thailand, right? We are here. I'm here in Seattle and I'm doing my best and I'm trying to get those flavors, but I can't do it authentically. Right. But I also know when we are just cooking we're cooking for, for nutrition, we're cooking for flavor, we're cooking for satisfaction and enjoyment, and frankly, a little bit of entertainment too. And so at those moments, I actually don't think that we're trying so, so hard to be authentic. It's this modern take on food that is obviously not something that Clementine was dealing with when she was writing. I'm kind of curious as to why we went in that direction, but that's going to be a bigger picture kind of thing. I'm going to See if I'm going to get some perspectives from some folks on that one. But I love the fact that she apparently takes things at face value mm. in the nicest possible way. So there's a description of her coming into the home of Mayor Clinton and his family. She gets met at the door by his daughter, who's wearing a white flannel nightgown. And then the mom comes up behind us. Oh, we're expecting you. Please come in. Everything about it is just incredibly humble and real. And that's an authenticity that I really appreciated reading about. They're sitting at the dining room table so that Clementine can spread out her notebooks and they can look at recipes. And from his chair in the den, the mayor's, tell her about your peach glaze pie. And other kids like, tell her about the thing that we like to eat. And Oh, and don't forget about your crab mold that you make for the whatever club. And it's those moments that she's just faithfully documenting. Mm. She's not questioning where, where did this come from and why are you cooking like this? For her, it was really just show me how you're eating. Show me how you're cooking and let's see how we fit together as a whole in a whole country. So that really gave me some pause here to say, of course, why not? Why aren't we? Just thinking about what we're cooking and eating at home. Because from there, we do springboard into the bigger discussion about, it, it, does this mean something? It mm. might not. Does it reflect a certain way that we're living here in the Northwest versus how we live in the Southeast? And does it matter? Does that make sense? Exactly. Does it matter? When we talk about this authenticity versus accuracy, or is authenticity, is that the right word? Or is accuracy the right word? Mm -hmm. Does it matter? Does it matter? Yeah. 
if we are putting food on the table, like you said, to nourish and entertain, does it matter if I use the authentic ingredients? Or is it about that community that I'm feeding, that I'm engaging with? Yeah. Does it matter is a very good question. In this conversation about authenticity and accuracy, I'm reminded of last month's book, Watermelon and Redbirds, mm. because I remember specifically going to the recipe about red velvet cake. And Nicole Taylor in Watermelon Redbirds points out how a cake would have been made at a specific moment in time, 1866. Her point was the red velvet cake that we know today, the overdyed chocolate cake that's brilliant red and it's the cream cheese frosting, that came much later. So what are we looking at as being authentic or accurate even? Like what is even accuracy? Accurate to what? Accurate to when? Right. Yeah. Because that cake has changed so much over the years. And I know that its color is representative and symbolic and a joyful thing, but it hasn't always been. And so again, we're in this sort of playful space. So does it matter that the original cake wasn't the brilliant red that we think of it today. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's more that it's a sweet treat that's joyful to eat. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I guess what I do love about her book in, in discussing this authenticity versus accuracy is, like you said, she just listened. She, yeah. she wasn't trying to change minds. She wasn't trying to develop a story that really wasn't there. She listened and then she documented and she shared it with us so that we had the opportunity essentially be there with her as she was experiencing these things. And yeah. I just, I love that about this book. And what a huge endeavor. Even mm. trying to take on a similar thing today where mm -hmm. I've got <laughs> internet and high-speed travel. I can take it. A train. Well, I don't know if trains are high speed, but yeah, I can jump in my car. Like I could, it, I, we had the same things. This is not, it's not like she was of a decade or a time where everything had to be done by horse-drawn buggy. You know, I'm being realistic right. here, but the scale of this endeavor is yeah. enormous. And not only did yeah. she finish it, but she had an incredible result because of it. This book is thorough and mm -hmm. detailed. I can pull up any state in the United States and even Ohio, which is frankly a tiny state, you can get anywhere in Ohio in, within three hours. But she captured how there are these subtle differences between Cleveland in the north and Cincinnati in the south. There actually can be a broad variety of difference in food in the state of Ohio. But and she got it. She actually <laughs> did pick up on the fact that there are these nuances in the food and that there is the German immigration story that's very much part of Ohio culinary trends, as well as the sort of the Appalachian story, because Southeast Ohio is perched at the top of the Appalachian region. And it was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed looking through this. I'm actually going to be spoiled for choice on the recipes, but <laughs> no, she was, she just seemed to be a really remarkable person. Yeah. And that said, I'd like to go back to where I started with my tirade about the inequality dished on Clementine. Like you said, just the magnitude of what she's done. Today, she would be honored as an influencer. Absolutely. But because of bad timing and her untimely death, this force of nature who paved a path to food writing that we both are privileged to be part mm -hmm. of 
who established the concept of regional cooking, who traveled 800,000 miles to give voice to cooks across the country, her seminal book was overshadowed by the innovation of the television. And a tall, warbly-voiced cook who taught us to appreciate not American foods, but the art of French cooking. Now, I know that's a little Mm -hmm. bit dramatic, and I do love the impact that Julia made. Don't get me wrong, but I do think it's time to reach into that forgotten shelf, pull out How America Eats, and discover why the Peach Ridge Fruit Growers Association recipes include sweet potatoes and apples, apple potato salad, apple butterhorns, but no peach recipes, Hmm. or what Mom Dewey served for dessert after her farm pot roast was cleared from the table. And even if you don't cook from the book, which you really should, the stories and writing give voice to so many of the cooks that satisfy our hometown appetites. What are you waiting for? Go find a copy at your local bookstore. They may need to order it for you, but it's worth the wait. I can't wait to cook from this. In fact, I might even start today because we're doing a funny thing at work. We're doing an alumni potluck event. You're supposed to bring in a food that kind of represents your college town. I'm thinking that I might need to make some of the stuff from Ohio just because I'd forgotten about it and it's nostalgic and it's maybe not exactly food that I would have eaten in college, but... I think it would be fun to bring a taste of Ohio to my office in Seattle. So more to come about what I end up cooking. I'm super excited to see what you end up cooking for our next episode. Thank you for introducing me to Ms. Paddleford. I really appreciate actually getting to know her a little bit better. I'm looking forward to that article. There is so much more information about her that I want to share. So I'm super excited about it as well. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And as you're reaching back into that bookshelf to find Clementine Paddleford's How America Eats, Could you just take one minute and rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or Spotify? It really helps us to continue to grow the podcast. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber for great content about our shows, deeper dives into ingredients or dishes, or just interesting niblets from our great As We Eat community. Subscribe at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. ba ba da da ba 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 